Yeah, Vaughn? Yes, yes, John Starks. Yes, yeah, Reggie, Reggie Miller from the corner. Yes, yes. Do you want to just do Marv Albert impressions the whole show? <laughs> go, Marv, go. Let's go. Go, Marv, go. Two twins and an album. T, how are we doing on this fine August, shall we say, afternoon? Yeah, matinee performance today. Um, yes, it is. Doing well. I, I kind of almost feel like uh, maybe we should be doing the final cut or, or maybe a darker um, Floyd album because, you know, it's kind of like that idea where you, you only watch a scary movie during the daytime. Yeah, it's, yeah. It kind of feels like, you know, the sun is out, which usually we're doing this at night for those that don't know what the hell we're talking about. And... You know, I almost feel like we should be getting, um, you know, going to a dark place because uh, typically I do that. If there's like a really disturbing documentary or scary movie or something, I'll only watch it during the day. But uh, but we, we went in a different direction. We are already off to an incredibly inaccurate start because I said it's an August day and it's a September day. Oh, so yeah. I, well, maybe it's the pandemic, but I can't keep my months straight. Maybe we should start over. Did <laughs> it? <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, welcome to episode 12. And uh, T, today we're going to talk about the, the albums in between the albums. Mm-hmm. You know, think about bands that have had not just one classic album, but let's say more than one. In the case of Pink Floyd, you can easily say two. I would make the argument there was many more. But certainly Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall are Pink Floyd's two legendary albums, right? And it's always fascinating if those albums did not come back to back to look at what came in between the classic albums. Think about, let's say, The Beatles, for example. You had Rubber Soul and you had Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But what's really revered is the album between the albums, which is Revolver. And most hardcore Beatles fans would put Revolver in their top three, top two, or maybe even number one. And I think it represents itself interestingly as an album between two fundamental albums for that group. It's number one for this guy. I'll tell you that much, Revolver. Yeah. And think about you know some of the really tremendously tremendous bands in the history of rock music and tremendously if, tremendous, tremendously tremendous. Okay. Okay. Cool. Double yeah. tremendous. And if, if they had more than one classic album, which they probably did, if they were considered tremendously tremendous, the albums in between are always a fascinating study. And tonight we're going to kind of go in between the classics, if you will. What do you think of this concept of the albums between the albums? I think, I mean, you, you obviously have brought us a, a great example of that. And I think that, you know, what defines, you know, really phenomenal bands and groups versus those that just had a good run is, you know, could you make that middle album work? Because you see this a lot where I think if you put out one album, that's cool. If you put out two good ones in a row, 
you know, you're doing something right. But if you're putting out three like fantastic albums in a row, that's where that separation between good bands and, and great, important classic bands, I think, comes into play. And often you got to get that middle one right. Now, it doesn't need to be revered at the same levels and it doesn't need to be acclaimed at the same levels. But if you put out something you know, kind of in that middle spot that really holds up or really makes a important creative statement, then I think that's where you get some separation. And the Floyd certainly, uh, I think, can safely say they separated themselves from the rest. Well, today we'll look at Animals, you know, which of course was released in 1977. And this actually is one of two albums between the albums, if you go with this dark side, the wall thing. But Many would say that Animals is sandwiched between two classics itself, if you look at Wish You Were Here. So it's a four-album run that is about as outstanding as a four-album run can get. But Animals holds a unique place because it's the least revered. It was the one with zero commercial potential. And and I think it's the intention behind that that makes it really special. Well, and seeing that the entire theme of the record, because, you know, Roger Waters can never just play music. There's always got to be a, you know, a message, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And it's always got to be uh, pretty out there. But uh, hell, I guess if you're, you're making basically an anti-corporate, anti-capitalism statement on a record, you better not have it be loaded with pop hits. That's a great point. Yeah, it's a, that's a important observation. And one of the great ironies, because Pink Floyd at this point is at its absolute commercial peak, yet you've got old Roger there doing nothing but complaining about corporations and greed and all that as the album was released on EMI and Columbia. As he does, as Roger as, Waters does. As he does, bless him. So before we look at the albums between the albums, let's look at the albums that are on our shelf and maybe spinning around on our turntables as we take this thing round and round. T, what is round and round for you? The first is actually a band that I am really excited. Very recently, within the last couple of weeks, announced a new album coming out, and that is the Deftones. And the album, I mean, that you could pick any of them. I, this is a band that I just love going back and picking an album and sort of being obsessed with it for a week, you know. Um, but Koi No Yokin, I think I'm saying that right, is uh, was their record from maybe 10 years ago or so. And um, outstanding opener with Swerve City, one of my favorite Deftones tracks. But really, really excited that uh, Chino and the and the boys are going to be uh, coming through with something new. I think they're just fantastic and create so much atmosphere. It's not just a metal, you know, sludgy, heavy project. That those guys really understand dynamics, and you talk a lot about space. You know, uh, nubs with the, some of the music that you bring to the table on the old podcast here, and I think that they really do a good job of executing that. So excited about the new Deftones record, and certainly been. Uh, giving a koi no yuck and a, a, a spin. Is it a problem that Swerve City makes me want to, uh, you know, go rip somebody's head off? Yeah. Like punch somebody for no reason. <laughs> and I'm not a violent guy, but that song is, yeah. if I was ever going to get into a fight or a slow motion fight montage featuring, you know, Gumby himself, AKA me out there trying to throw haymakers. <laughs> I want Swerve City 
playing yeah. in the background for sure. Yeah, that's one that I kind of wish I could go back and uh, add to my uh, sports pump up playlist, you know, pregame playlists, because uh, that thing will just get you ready to run through a brick wall. Uh, the second one is 11, 17, 70, which is a collection of numbers. But uh, you know what I'm talking about? Elton John. There it is. Yeah. The, uh, the, the fairly brief, uh, live collection from Elton John, which obviously comes from it. It's not really a collection. It's a performance. The, uh, take me to the pilot on that is just, uh, ridiculous. This was with the trio, I believe with just Elton, uh, the bass player. And then of course his, uh, outstanding drummer whose name escapes me. You probably it, know it Nigel Olson. And there I think, go. I think it's with, with D Murray too. Oh, I think okay. that's the trio. I believe. I think Dean Murray was the bass player. Don't quote me on that, but Nigel Olson was certainly the drummer and he's a fantastic musician. I love Nigel Olson. Well, thank you. You're probably correct on that, but uh, a great trio performance and really kind of raw, but with a lot of backbeat and a lot of power, they really, you know, when you, when you look at that rhythm section and then couple it with Elton's ability to produce melody, that's pretty strong. So great live performance, 11, 17, 70, check it out if you've never heard it. And the third is a little bit of a Jane's Addiction spinoff. This is Deconstruction from, I believe it was 1994. This was Eric Avery and Dave Navarro's project that they sort of worked on really as Jane's Addiction was crumbling. And it's a, boy, it's a really interesting, at the time, pretty innovative. It was on the Rick Rubin label, the American Recordings label, and never really took off mainstream, but uh, has some incredible songs. L.A. song opener, uh, Get Adam, which is track three, Total Jams. So for those of you that are fans of uh, Jane's Addiction or enjoy what you heard from Eric Avery, who is a one of the best rock bass players ever and uh, Dave Navarro, who is Dave Navarro, uh, check out Deconstruction. So those are my three picks. Uh, what's round and round for you, Nub? First off would be uh, a band called The Sin and the album is Sin Destructible. And what's significant about The Sin is it's uh, the band that Chris Squire was in before he joined Yes. And the band actually reformed, I guess you would say decades later, Speaking of pretty good bassists, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he wasn't bad. He he was he was okay. He could do a few things. Yeah. Um. And the sin reunited, which was basically Steve Nardelli and Chris Squire, and then some other musicians to record Sin Destructible in 2005. It is just a, an excellent Chris Squire album. Chris Squire did a a really amazing solo album in the seventies called fish out of water and, and never made another solo album, but he did occasionally veer from yes and do some separate things. Sin destructible is one of those albums like tonight's album. It's a pretty short album. It's only six or seven tracks, but um, moves along with a great kind of prog sensibility. And, you know, Squire's bass work is just fabulous as always. And I strongly recommend it. So sin destructible has been uh making regular appearances as has Gary Newman's album warriors. I kind of like some of the, what people consider the bad Newman era. 1983 was when warriors came out. Gary would probably tell you this was during a time where he was in a bad way, but I like a lot of that work that he did in the eighties. And uh, so warriors has been spinning around and then also um, foreigner, the first foreigner album, which has cold as ice on it and feels like the first time, uh, it's a great rock album came out in 1980 
And Foreigner is not one of my favorite of sort of the, you know, kind of stadium rock bands from the eighties, but that first Foreigner album is, is kind of a jam. And so that's, what's been round and round for me T. And thank you for asking. <laughs> did, did you know, this is kind of weird, but, and I still can't really explain it, but their album from the mid eighties, which was called agent provocateur. Um, which of course had, I, I want to know what love is on it. And it was probably their, I would imagine their most successful mainstream album. For some reason, that is one of my favorite all time album covers. Oh, with like the colored shapes on it. Or yeah. Whatever? With the colored really? shapes on it, which really? actually, if you look at it, it, it makes out an F uh, presumably for foreigner. Uh, I mean, I'm just kind of going out on a limb there, but yeah, I and, and I have this thing. I think I talked about it previously with the I think we were talking about ecstasy, oranges and lemons. Um, and I have this thing for colorful album covers. It's true. Yeah, Fact. I remember I remember you mentioning that. And uh I, I, I think that's a very creative pick for a favorite album cover in terms of the foreigner album. The the problem is, man, I, and I know you and I differ on this. I want to know what love is, is probably in my least favorite, my, my bottom five songs of the eighties. Oh, stop it. Oh, I just can't stand that. And I know you love it. Just cut it out. Oh, oh, I hate the verses in that song. I just hate it. Oh, geez. The little pre-chorus bit is cool. And then the chorus is just dreadful. I mean, well, listen, listen, I think, um, this is episode 12. Yes. Okay. I think we've all learned by this point that you have no soul. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 a, and a very limited heart. So I'm not surprised you can't, uh, you really can't feel a song like that. Shame on you. I can neither confirm or deny <laughs> that accusation because I don't have the heart to do so. See, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of album covers, almost a perfect segue into our featured album on episode 12. The album cover is a fascinating part of 1977's Animals. And while Pink Floyd may be a band that some have heard of, maybe, I think we should go right into the Nerdy Deets, which, by the way, are done, dirt, cheap. You want some Nerdy Deets? Yeah! You want some Nerdy Deets? Animals was recorded at Britannia Row Studios in London, which is in England, in 1976. It's produced by none other than... Pink Floyd, the band. By this time, the band had earned quite a bit of control. And if there's one thing we know Roger Waters loves, it's control. (laughs) And so this was really the band working virtually on its own. Uh, Brian Humphreys did engineer the album, but it is produced by Pink Floyd. Of course, the iconic lineup at this point of Roger Waters on bass and vocals, the great David Gilmore on guitar and vocals, Rick Wright or Richard Wright, as he was commonly listed in liner notes on all things keyboard and the heart and soul of the rhythm of the band, Nick Mason on drums. So we mentioned the sleeve. The original sleeve design was supposed to be by Hypnosis, who did Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here. And, you know, one of the most famous album designers of the 70s, if you ever if you don't believe me, just look at a list of the album designs that Hypnosis did. And uh, it's a pretty impressive list. Hypnosis had a bunch of different concepts for the, the really famous cover of Animals. But at some point, old Roger said, you know what, I think I'll take this over. And, and like most things in the story of Pink Floyd, uh, took control over the album sleeve design. So what they did is 
they found, and, and Roger was pretty familiar with a, uh, with a location in London that he was pretty enamored with. And that location was Battersea Power Station, which apparently he would drive by pretty regularly. And the idea was to construct a 40-foot balloon in the shape of a pig, because clearly, as we'll get into, this imagery of the pig is a significant part of animals. And this actual pig balloon was going to be floated above Battersea Power Station, and then a picture was going to be taken, and that was going to be the sleeve. So everything went to plan, sort of, until the balloon was inflated. And then blew away <laughs> the day that they were going to do the shoot. It broke free of the things that were holding it to Battersea Power Station. And it actually floated in the, in the sky over Heathrow Airport, which resulted in some drama at Heathrow. And some flights got canceled and pilots looked out their window and saw this pig floating in the air, which <laughs> understandably caused some confusion. Yeah, just another day on the job. Another you know, day. Yeah. Exactly. So the next day that the balloon was eventually recovered and it was reinflated. And the next day they gave it another go, but then realized that the, the photographs that they had of the power station the day before were, were better. And so they later superimposed the image of the pig into the sleeve. And so it was meant to be a live picture with the actual pig floating in the air. And because of all those issues turned into a superimposed image, but nonetheless resulted in the very memorable image of Battersea Power Station with the pink pig floating in the sky above it. And the pig would become a really important metaphor for this particular album. By this point in Pink Floyd's story, you know, it was a pretty drama ridden situation. Uh, Rick Wright, hates the album. Nick Mason loves the album. David Gilmore, you never quite know where he falls on these issues. <laughs> and of course, Roger Waters thinks it's a work of lyrical genius and has since dug it up for some of his solo tours that he's done. Gilmore was always pretty good at towing the company line. You know, he, uh, you don't hear him taking hard positions on a lot of Pink Floyd work. And, uh, it, obviously it was interesting how he sort of continued the band and Roger bowed out and all that, but it, you kind of feel like um, Gilmore was always fairly reluctant to be too critical or, or really too bullish on uh, a lot of Pink Floyd work. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It seems like that was kind of his role. Rick Wright hates it, but I think it has some of his best performances. Nick Mason loves it. And I think this is probably Nick Mason's best Pink Floyd album, just in terms of drumming. I mean, it's really mm -hmm. adventurous and it seems to be right in his wheelhouse for the pocket that he likes to find. Five songs and really three long pieces, if you think about it. This, this is more in the vein of a close to the edge type of progressive rock album than it is The Wall, which... I think is still going. I think it just never ends. <laughs> and, and this album certainly fits in with, uh, with the prog side of Pink Floyd. It, it's absolutely considered their progressive rock masterpiece and makes a lot of lists in terms of some of the most famous prog albums of all time. As we mentioned earlier, it holds a very unique place in the Floyd catalog. And uh, it'll be fun to dig into here uh, as we discover animals. T, I want to know how you like me, fell in love with the Floyd. Let's get to the wonder stories so I can hear the TOEF wonder story for Pig Floyd. Spin the wonder stories. Let's go. 
is your Pink Floyd story? I had kind of a unique approach with Pink Floyd, and this happened probably around like junior high school, probably age 12 or 13. We were really into some of the stuff that's a little more straightforward, like Led Zeppelin and, you know, uh, ACDC and some of those things that are a little bit easier to figure out. But, you know, by the time we hit about, I think it was in about seventh grade, um, I became kind of ready, ready for the Floyd. And we had a, we had a buddy and uh, we all called him Froggy. And Froggy was this guy who had a cool dad who really introduced him to cool music and all that. And, um, you know, one day I was over at his house and actually of all things, the first time I ever, you know, actually sat and really focused on a Pink Floyd song was off of metal. And it was one of these days. And, you know, Froggy was like, oh, you got to hear this bass. This is so cool. And, you know, all that. And, um, that was actually the first time I became at least interested because it was kind of like, Oh, that's different. And he realized at that time it was like, wow, this was made 20 years ago. That's really interesting. And so then from there, I really got into the wall and actually I credit the wall with teaching me how to play the guitar. You know, I never, I've never taken guitar lessons and basically self-taught and really there were, two albums that um, basically taught me how to play and it was the wall and it was um, Led Zeppelin two. So, um, you know, playing along with those albums is really kind of how I learned various songs and parts and licks and chords and all that kind of thing. So, you know, I dug pretty hard into it at that point and then sort of went backwards, you know, and Dark Side was one of the last things that I actually really kind of got into. It was, you know, checking out animals. It was checking out Wish You Were Here a little bit, but it was really, you know, digging into metal, digging into Adam Hartmother. I listened to Adam Hartmother constantly. And then, of course, you learn about the Sid Barrett years and the Sid Barrett album and that whole part of the history. I mean, it's a really fascinating band to study. So... Yeah, it was one of those, when I was ready for the Floyd, I got really into them and boy, it's a band that you can still go back and just realize so much of the variety and so much of the kind of progression of how they started and what they did in the middle and what they did at the end. And and it all sort of culminated with a concert at the Pontiac Silverdome, which is now, a, I don't know, is it like condos now or something? I know they- Parking lot. Parking lot. Yeah, I, know, I know they blew it up. And we saw Pink Floyd when they were touring the Division Bell, you know, obviously much later where Roger Waters wasn't a part of the part of the deal, but the remaining three members were. And I think you went to both shows. The the show that I went to with you was that <laughs> that just extraordinarily lucky night where you know, they decided to play Dark Side of the Moon start to finish, which I think they only did a couple times on that tour. They did twice on the tour. One was at Wembley Stadium and the other yeah. was at the Pontiac Silverdome. I mean, just unbelievable. So, and incredible. the reason for that was the, it was the rate that it sold out at. It was the first show that I ever waited in line for 
uh, a concert, but it was when Ticketmaster was doing the wristband policy. So you wait in line to get a wristband, then you get a wristband, and then based on your number, they'd line you up. And dude, I got so lucky. I was like fifth in line. Yeah. And I remember I got my allotted tickets, four or six or whatever it was. And then literally three dudes behind me was the last guy to get tickets. Well, thank you. Um, because <laughs> that ended up being, I mean, one of the most magical concerts certainly we've ever, well, I don't want to speak for you, but certainly I've ever been to and made for just an incredible, you know, Pink Floyd experience. Two things you mentioned are, were just vital for our Pink Floyd story. This is one of those bands where our stories are pretty locked in with one another. One is Froggy. I mean, Froggy was vital, you know? <laughs> Indeed, he was, he was. And Froggy, remember Froggy had kind of a deadpan delivery, you know? He was just, he was almost like a... He was kind of a dumbass, you know? I mean, but, <laughs> but, but had, you know, terrific musical uh, taste. He was kind of like a grunge slash hippie. He was, he was a unique guy. Yeah. And he just adored Pink Floyd. And his adoration of them certainly rubbed off. And so big credit to Froggy for that. Was Froggy at the Silverdome show with us? He was at the first one, the one okay. I was at that you weren't, which was still an excellent show, which actually ended up being the first show. So the one we were at was the Friday night. And I also went to the Thursday night with a friend. And right. so, um, and take no credit away from the Thursday night show. It was, I mean, it was awesome. But the dark side show at the silver dome was, you know, if a concert could ever be life changing, it was just to feel so special that you got to see that and got to be there. And it, it was a weird kind of lesson for me in that like always take advantage of your opportunity. Cause if I hadn't gone and waited in line and done the whole wristband thing, I gotten lucky you know, we would never have been able to be there. And looking back, the people there that night really saw something just, legendary. Yeah. And so, um, those two things are really vital, but for me, actually the beginning of the Pink Floyd story is ironically MTV, which there's no band less MTV than Pink Floyd. <laughs> but when they got back together in the eighties and did momentary lapse of reason, learning to fly was the first single off of that album and became sort of an MTV hit. It was a really cool video if you remember it. And that was actually the first time I really heard Pink Floyd was the learning to fly video, but never made the connection. I knew they were this famous band that made these famous albums and they did the wall and all that. So sort of worked backwards. Dark side became an obsession for me. It was an album I listened to just so often. Animals was actually one of the last albums I got into by Pink Floyd. And I think to this day gives it a special place for me because it still has a little bit of freshness. Everything else has been sort of overdone. Wish You Were Here has been overdone. Uh, the Wall and Dark Side, you know, how do you escape some of that material? Animals will always have a freshness to it for me because it was one of the last I discovered. And because it's so unique to their catalog, it seems like every time you listen to it, you can hear new things. And, and you can't necessarily say that about some of the other records. T, I think it's only appropriate that we dive into Animals. It's five songs. It's really three pieces. And so like the pig did after it became deflated while hovering above the power station, let's take a dive and let's go with the drop the needle for Pink Floyd's animals. Drop the needle on the 
For an album as grand lyrically and, and an album that packs such a statement in it, it starts out quite unassuming and, and in quite a meek place with basically Roger Waters and acoustic guitar with the introduction to the album Pigs on the Wing 1. Kind of a stage setter for animals, both lyrically, musically. I think it was a smart choice to do something really stripped down. Um, Waters clearly knew what was to come, and the whole band knew what was to come in terms of just the musicality that would be on animals. But I think it's a nice, heartfelt, you know, kind of piece just to get things started. Apparently, and it is a it's a prologue and an epilogue, really. I think to the sort of musical adventure that you get taken on in tracks two through four. Apparently this was um, like a love song. Uh, Waters was recently in a new relationship and I don't know, maybe he thought dogs, pigs and sheep was too heavy and wanted to kind of lighten things up or I don't know, maybe he was just trying to score points with his new GF. I don't know, but uh, apparently it's always sometimes hard to figure out, you know, he was certainly trying to, lighten things and, and bookend this pretty intense musically album and I guess lyrically with this not just softer element musically but a, apparently a softer weirdly romantic element lyrically things really get barking ha! get it barking you got, you got it Things really start barking when the album truly takes off with the undisputed epic on animals, dogs. So Dogs is the only uh, co-writing credit that David Gilmore has on the album. It's really the only time where his voice comes through. It's a really important track and um, certainly starts off with a, a kind of a rolling strumming acoustic guitar thing. And Gilmore's voice eventually comes in and kind of takes over. But I think what really makes Dogs happen is kind of the transition at right around three minutes, 44 seconds. It goes from this upbeat strummy thing into the breakdown. And this is where Rick Wright's electric piano really becomes a factor and, and the song gets a little bit more serious. Let, let's hear that transition right around 344. I mean, dude, is there anything more Gilmore than that? That guitar tone? I mean, my goodness. Yeah, and one of the things I think is really interesting is, you know, animals being the sort of tweener, you know, sandwiched in between Wish You Were Here and The Wall, 
you can hear a lot of things that are kind of stemming from wish you were here. Now that's the album where they really started to introduce a lot of layering through synth and keys and some of these things, which Pink Floyd always did very tastefully. You know, they never, you know, it was never Rick Wakeman esque. Um, It was always pretty subtle and pretty, you know, sweeping and on dogs in particular, you can kind of still hear that, that sort of leftover idea of keys and layering and those things, which you heard a lot on wish you were here. And as this progresses, you can almost kind of hear some sort of prelude musical preludes to the wall because things become a lot more stripped down. Cause a lot of people argue that wish you were here, got a little heavy on keys and layering and synth elements and those things, which I always liked, but, part of the beauty of animals and it's more so as the album goes on is it, is it, is it does exemplify a pretty stripped down Floyd. You know, you're not getting tons of other elements or tons of productions. It's pretty much each of them just going at it. And, uh, but I like the way on dogs, particularly in that section that, that you just pointed us to of uh, kind of the atmosphere that's created and the Floyd always knew how to create an atmosphere for better or for worse. It's a great take on the stripped down nature of the album. It's really just four guys kind of being themselves as musicians and letting it fly. There is not an ounce of overproduction on this album. And the interesting thing, as I mentioned at the top, Rick Wright will always be a little salty about animals because he feels like he was really left out of the writing process, but his playing is tremendous. I mean, it's perfect for what these songs ask for. He's got the synth work going. His Rhodes and electric piano stuff is is vital to the sound of this album. So yeah, maybe his writing isn't present, but as a player, I think it's I think it's Rick Wright in some ways at his very best. Yeah, and it's an important note too that I mean this really is the only song with co-writing credit. I mean this is this is a Roger Waters album you know, start to finish. And, uh, but you can certainly, I mean, dogs, I think what defines that track within this record is it really is where you get the Gilmore effect and there's never anything wrong with that. Yeah, for sure. Well, waters certainly finds a way to really take over on track three. And, uh, this is where I think waters pushes Gilmore aside and says, all right, dude, you got your moment. You got your 17 minutes. Now it's my turn to take over this album with Pigs, Three Different Ones. Really funky edge to Pigs. Probably Waters' best bass line, I would say, in the whole Floyd catalog. Uh, He's really pushing himself here as a bassist. And Roger Waters was a very good bass player. You know, it's unfortunate that people don't give him his due. He he makes such a big deal out of his own lyrical prowess. He's an outstanding bass player, and it really shows on pigs. And what you you do see here, too, is the development of this theme. It it doesn't take, uh, you know, a rocket scientist to sort of see the symbolism here. It's very Orwellian. It's based on Animal Farm. You've got the dogs, which is the, the, you know, the the business guys, the pigs, which represents the greed. And then later, you know, the good guys sweep in and 
and make everything right. But pigs gets into this whole corporate greed, blah, blah, blah. This thing, you know, this motif that waters seems to never be willing to leave, but just musically. I mean, his, his bass part here is, is as funked out as one can get. And he, and he could bring the funk. I mean, have a cigar, you know, as a waters tune, you know, through and through you saw it. You see it here on Pigs, three different ones. You saw it all over the wall. Didn't really see it on the final cut. He didn't really bring the funk on that one. Uh, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, but um, yeah, I mean, he great bass player and um, was able to at a time where you saw it a lot in Prague, but you didn't see it a ton with a, a band like this that was more mainstream and more radio friendly where the bass could really take lead, you know, and Boy, you, you know, whether it's Rush or whether it's Yes or whether, I mean, this, this really became a thing. And, and I think a lot of um, what Waters brought to the table really throughout even earlier stuff than this, but certainly it, it's pretty evident on animals, was the ability for um, a bass player who can pull it off to really drive a song. And uh, he certainly drives this one. Every long piece on animals has a great transition moment. We visited the one in dogs for pigs, three different ones, right around four ten, you get the drop into that really effective and emotional strum riff that Gilmore plays. And then it goes into kind of that instrumental section with those waters bass slides during the space. It's just a, it's just a absolutely fantastic uh, kind of breakdown that they do here. Let, let's roll that right around, uh, right around four ten. And of course, the appearance of the pig snorting. As you had the dogs barking at the end of dogs. Completely unnecessary during this uh, section. <laughs> oh, well. You, you have some really uh, kind of just smooth Nick Basin drum fills to go in and out of these sections. Yeah. Again, I think his playing on animals is just exceptional. Gilmore doesn't shred the way he does during certain moments on wish you were here and during certain moments on the wall as much on animals, but I'll tell you some of the rhythm parts and some of the more chord based and progression based lead parts are just great. And, you know, Gilmore gets a lot of, you know, accolades for his soloing and certainly his pentatonic work and some of those things that, um, he's become known for being a feel bend type player, but you know, he proves, I think on, on this record and certainly on, on that particular section, you just pointed us to that he could produce some really nice, you know, rhythm elements that when coupled with waters and certainly Mason kind of providing that backbeat are really, really effective on, on this album. I agree with all that. His, the key to Gilmore's playing has always been the atmosphere. You know, he can tread, he's got chops, but that tone is just so atmospheric. I do want to dig one of those Roger Waters bass slides. So let it roll a few seconds uh, later in this section and kind of hear what they did during one of these musical breaks. (laughs) 
and then right into the uh, talk box section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just a, a ton of imagination from the guys uh, as part of the, as part of these sessions. They were really just kind of letting it go. All right, the dogs have come and created chaos, and the pigs, with their corporate greed and all, are wreaking havoc. So who comes and saves the day? Of course, the sheep. And it results in one of the great jams in Pink Floyd's catalog. Sheep. So this is the cavalry coming to town, the good guys. And at the very end, which will spin a, a few seconds of Waters has even said really represents the sheep coming in and standing up to the dogs and, and the good guys seem to win, which Pig Floyd, as you've referenced a couple of times, mentioning the final cut, not always the most optimistic <laughs> group ever, but in animals, the, the good guys seem to win at the end. All right. Uh, so that's triumphant. And it is. This is kind of that, you know, there's transitions in the other songs. This one kind of ends with a flourish. You know, it's just got this wide open jam. I love Wright's intro with that kind of doodly keyboard stuff. But they're kind of hitting on all cylinders here with kind of a 4-4 four, four balls to the wall sort of rock jam. Oh, the last like three or four minutes of this are just phenomenal. Um, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a, there's a lot of one of these days to this, the aforementioned track uh, off of metal with that pulsating kind of bass part, which really chugs it along. Now, this is Waters just being the backbone. You know, when he's playing that octave part at the end and and uh, Gilmore is kind of doing his, you know, chord progressions kind of higher up on the neck. I mean, that is just, that is great locked in stuff right there. So there's a little bit of that. It's also, you, you hear some uh, run like hell, you know, and kind of the vocal approach and kind of over that groove. I almost feel like this is a little bit of like a, like run like hell is almost like a mini, mini sheep, like a, like a calf, I guess. (laughs) A calf. Right. I like that. Yeah. So, um, that is what a baby sheep is, right? Well, I'm going to pretend like it is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I love when you get that Floyd signature sound because they could have, listen, these guys were good enough and talented enough and experimental enough. They could have gone off the rails and gone a little too crazy, which maybe they did from time to time on individual sort of segments, but they weren't afraid to pull out that signature sound. And I think that one of those became this driving pulsating you know kind of thing with really creative guitar work over really backbony strong you know bass and drum work and sheep is just a great example that i love the jam nature of it you know this is a unrelenting you know they do break it down a little bit in the middle but they take you right back out of it and this is really other than obviously the outro kind of the way this album uh, closes you out. And I, I just, I think Sheep's awesome. Huge fan. Floyd became so synonymous with space rock. I mean, they're sort of the pioneers of the space rock genre, if you want to call it that, but certainly the style. So there was always a great juxtaposition, a very effective one when they would go up tempo. And it didn't happen a lot. I mean, think about it. You know, they, they made entire albums 
without anything truly up tempo. So when they would do yeah. that, you mentioned run like hell is a great example. It was important because it stood out. It was, it was diverse compared to their trademark sound and sheep certainly represents that. Let's just hear kind of the very ending, the conclusion of it, where the, where the sheep rise up and, and save the day for everybody. Just a model example of all four members of the Floyd firing on all cylinders. But it begs the question, you know, are you a a Gilmore guy or a Waters guy? And I think a good way to find that out is to resurrect what we haven't done for a little while, which would be a top five. I would love to know your top five Floyd songs. And I think through this, we'll learn a little bit about whether we are Gilmore guys was that a TV show, The Gilmore Guys? I think it was. Yeah, oh, The Gilmore Guys. It was yeah. The Gilmore Girls, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whether we're, whether we're same, the Gilmore... Same difference. Yeah, same difference. Whether we're The Gilmore Guys or whether we are in Waters' world, if you will. Oh. So, yeah, you that. like that? Yeah. <laughs> That's called a play on words, ladies and germs. Yeah, well done. So uh, let's hear your top five uh, Pink Floyd songs. I don't know if this is going to help. I, I suppose there are some Sid Barrett people, too, if you really got down into it that's uh, like the, that's like the coffee shop kids that are like, yeah right. oh, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about I they sucked Sid. after they sucked yeah. after Sid, yeah. Bro. Yeah. yeah exactly um so i i should have said this during my wonder stories but i don't know if you remember when we got our first four track um recording device which we had no idea how to use and we just kind of you know screw around with it the first song, because this was the first time you could build a song and record a song. I mean, granted, we were 13 and we weren't that good, but you could by yourself lay down a bass, lay down a guitar, lay down a drum. You know, it was, was kind of like, wow, I can do this now. And the first song, I don't know if you remember this, was that I ever did by myself on that four track was a horrendous version of In the Flesh. I, I do it was remember so this. bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and I played it totally wrong and everything, but you know, who cares? It was cool. But I, so I'm going with In the Flesh. That is, um, I don't know, something about that opener on the wall just sort of grabs me every time. I love the guitar section and the theatrical nature of it. I just think is cool. So I'm going with that. And that's the one. Uh, with the question mark because there are yes. two flushes. So yes. 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 Um, the second is in Stellar Overdrive, which is kind of going back a bit. But um, you know, I really like the way they continued to keep this as part of the live set. I think they opened with it at the uh, show we were at, if I'm not mistaken. They opened it at the show I was at. Okay. I, I don't think they played it at the Friday night show, but that okay. is what they played first uh, on Thursday night. Yeah. And they played that, they opened with that song quite a bit. And I mean, that's a, I mean, you look at kind of the many sort of psychedelic um, staples that these guys had. That was certainly one of them. I mean, those type of songs just weren't really happening uh, as much, certainly at the forefront or even close to the mainstream. But I just, I love that song. I think it's, um, it's a real psychedelia progressive type gem. Uh, the third would be, and I'm coupling these together. I hope that's okay. But brain damage and eclipse are just ridiculous. Um, and that was a that was a memorable first listen. You know, when I kind of got, which like I said during Wonder Stories, I got into Dark Side a little bit later than some of the other stuff. But by the time you get to the end of that, and you uh, 
clearly a collaboration. Now Waters drives most of it vocally, but man, that whole the way that record ends with Eclipse is just I don't I don't know. That's a chills down your spine kind of thing, you know. Um, so I would have to put that in there. And next, I got to go with the song we just played, Sheep. I mean, certainly Love a top it. five. Love yeah. it. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. And, you know, you don't hear a lot of Pink Floyd top fives probably grab uh, any songs off of animals, but sheep, this 10 minute, 19 second ride, you know, I'm in. So, and then the last one would be later work off the division bell, high hopes. Just, uh, I mean, obviously that's a pretty well-known song, but that is a beautiful song. The closer to division bell and, you know, that's David Gilmore at some of his best work. How about yourself? I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. Well, we'll start where we crossed over, and this was somewhat predicted in my mind, but High Hopes uh, would start my top five list. How can that not be on everyone's Pink Floyd top five list? I mean, just an absolutely incredible song. I think the last two minutes of that song with the strings and the guitar solo are just exceptional. So High Hopes would kick mine off. Um, Dogs from... Animals would be oh, on nice. there. Yeah, nice. yeah. I, I just really love the way that that paces along and the two sections I think work so well together. Uh, echoes off of metal. Now, yeah, you know, maybe we should have made a no echoes rule, but I'm going to choose it anyway. <laughs> the entire side two of the metal album, an album that I've always really treasured. Um, I think it's the song that really got Pink Floyd on the track that they uh, forever were on, which is that space rock epic kind of feel. I just checked with the judges. They're going to allow it. Okay, good. All right. Good to hear. You're good. Yeah. You know, I've always had a soft spot for the final cut. It's always been one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums and continues to be. And the hero's return off the final cut uh, has always been a top five Floyd song for me. I just love the guitar riff. And I think what Waters is doing vocally on that song and some of the dynamics, I think are just, you know, really memorable. Is that the one with the sitar? um... Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, a great song. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, And like I said, I've always really I've always really had a deep down love for the final cut. And then off Dark Side of the Moon, Us and Them. I just simply think it's one of the best songs ever made. Yeah. Talk about a, <laughs> a giant sweeping chorus. And again, dynamics, just that that play between the verse and the chorus and a really large middle section. And I just Us and Them is just completely epic. I love it. A nice one. Well, that would be our top five Floyd songs. So why don't we conclude Animals with track five off Animals, which is the ending, which is Pigs on the Wing 2. You know that I care. Sounds a little bit like Pigs on the Wing 1. <laughs> Not a huge variation, is it? But I love the bookends of it. You know, if, it, yep. if, a, if a top album does the job of completing a thought, I love the bookend Pigs on the Wing idea. It starts where it ends and it ends where it starts and brings the whole thing full circle. And I just love this album. I, I think it's a, it holds such an important part of the Pink Floyd catalog. But let's make one thing really clear too. This is an important 1977 album in a year that brought on 
huge, significant changes to the music world. What came along in 1977? Punk. Yeah. The Sex Pistols were dominating the UK scene by the time this album came out, you know, and so I think albums like Animals, while I really respect and appreciate the punk movement and what it did for music, albums like Animals and some of the other things that came out during this time were important because it balanced punk out and reminded people, hey, there's still bands out there that can make, you know, really complex mind and genre bending music. And it helped, I think, keep things on pace, even as punk came to undo everything. Yeah, and I think the punk movement, it didn't take a lot to make Roger Waters grumpy, but I think the punk movement did in a way. And there became this um, Pink Floyd was old man music. There's that famous picture of, uh, is it Sid Vicious or Johnny Rotten? I forget who wearing the Pink Floyd shirt. And it says like suck or something. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. was some way that they dissed Pink Floyd on a t-shirt, you know, via magic marker. But there became almost this kind of clash of who could be the most outlandish. And I think in some ways it created Roger Waters becoming even more sort of angry and sort of um, extreme in some of what he was trying to do conceptually, lyrically, musically. And you really saw him, he sort of did on this record, but you really saw him just take full control or at least want to take full control of this band. And in many ways, I think what led to the demise of it, or at least his incorporation of it, was his insistence on not letting the Floyd become a certain thing. And I think when you're in an artistic project like that, you know, when you lose focus on what you want it to be, and you start focusing on what you don't want it to be, that's when things get off the rails. And I think he became so paranoid and so angry about the idea of them being mainstream or them being you know, part of a corporate label or, you know, trying to be mindful of radio airplay or, you know, album sales or whatever it might be. You know, I think that that led to kind of some of his disengagement with keeping this project going as it was and wanting to branch away from it, which obviously he eventually did. The tour of Animals was interesting in that it was really the, and we've talked a lot about whiny musician syndrome, you know, kind of all through this, uh, the, on the old podcast here, the last several episodes, we've, we've had several where that's been a theme. The animals tour was really where you heard Roger Waters starting to become outward with his dissatisfaction with fans and concert goers. And, you know, there was one specific example where he was so agitated with the people up front that were wanting to hear, you know, uh, hits or whatever they, you know, wanting them to rock or whatever. And he's up there, you know, trying to play 17 minute songs. Obviously this led to the wall and the whole thematic of the wall was, you know, that he just didn't feel engaged with the world or with their fans or with their, kind of uh, supporters from an artistic standpoint anymore. He kind of felt like it had all lost its way. Well, and you missed the most important part. He spit on an audience member. So he became so agitated. They'd actually, is it spit or spat? What did he, he spat? Yeah. And, 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 and you're right. That led to this whole idea of the wall. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's an interesting time period for the band as well here in 77, where you kind of felt like, you kind of felt like this was the last moment where maybe they were having a good time. And granted, there are some darker themes and there's some extreme anti-capitalist, et cetera, themes on this album that are pretty heavy. 
but for the most part, musically, and I think it's evident from the pigs on the wing intro and outro that they were still enjoying the process. Whereas by the time they got to the wall, things started to feel a little separated and a little bit siloed, almost like a Beatles white album type of a vibe. And then certainly the final cut as great as it is. And I agree it's important. It was essentially a water solo album, you know, and the band was not, necessarily rowing in the same direction you could tell at that time so you get the sense that maybe this was the last kind of fully integrated collaborative effort for these guys well i think those were really good rationales for the does it matter question that we always uh conclude the uh right. the episodes here kind of jumped the gun a little bit on ah, a little bit that's okay <laughs> D- did animals matter for you too yeah it did because you know it's this band that really could have gone fully commercial. You know, they were on a major label. They were on CBS records. I mean, this is like, this is big boy stuff. Right. And they pretty defiantly said, you know, we're in a position now where we have creative freedom and it wasn't so much about, you know, not having that many tracks because wish you were here. Didn't have that many tracks. And it wasn't so much about long songs But it certainly was, hey, we don't need a single on this record. I think that's the one big thing. You know, Wish You Were Here had a couple single. I mean, Have a Cigar is a single, you know. Um, Wish You Were Here is a single, you know. And The Wall had the same thing. But this is really a Floyd album, which kind of furthers that idea of it being fascinatingly in the middle here, to your point, to kick off this episode. They really kind of went out there and said, this will not have a single. This is going to be, you know, basically driven by three long tracks. And the fact that they had the creative freedom to not only be able to do that, but to choose to do that, I think makes for a really, really important album that's probably not as heralded or not as acclaimed in that way. But when you put it in the context of where it fell within the catalog and how they approached it, that was pretty unique at the time. And I think very important at the time of setting the tone for this idea of working hard to get your band to the point where you have a little bit of creative car blanche. And I think they had it and they took advantage of it. Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the great in-between albums of all time as we led with. I don't think it matters as much as the two that preceded it and the one that came after for mainstream fans, for kind of regular rock fans. For Floyd fans, I think Animals really matters because it's the band really on fire just from a musical perspective. I mean, they are just completely dialed in. As we referenced during the track by track, there's, there's so many things they're doing on this album that show that musically they were at their peak. From a commercial perspective, it doesn't matter as much as the, the three that surround it um, and will never receive the same acclaim for all the reasons that you just stated. So I think it just depends on what your level of fandom is on how much you would say this one matters. I think overall for a mainstream, I would say no. I'd say for a Floyd fan, I think it really matters. And then in the context of 1977 and being an antithesis to punk, that's where I think it gives it its significance. And you got to be kind of, you know, a little bit of a music historian to understand that context, but it's a big deal that this album came out in the same year that Nevermind the Bullocks came out and achieved great success, both critically and commercially. And, and for that, I think it holds a special place. All right, T the final cut, which, you know, sort of named after a Floyd album. That's right. That's right. 
Is Animals for You on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the dreaded for sale bin? Where's Animals T? I got to put it on the turntable, really, because, um, and again, I think this is my third on the turntable album. And it's the same rationale that you take a glorious band. And if you had to grab one album and leave the rest and keep it forever, um, what would that be? And for me, it's a pretty easy pick on animals. You know, I, I think that they put out some great other albums, clearly, you know, a lot of which have classic tracks and all those type of things and, and thematics that are interesting and, and how I think Piper at the Gates of Dawn is great. You know, I mean, I go all, all the way back with, with these guys and, and they're a fascinating study, but the dynamics of animals, the, the musical styles that you get, the fact that it's pretty to the point, I mean, it's 42 minutes. This is a pretty easy listen, you know. Um, it's not the wall where you've got, you know, two discs and you've got, you know, 40 tracks or whatever it ends up being um, to where it's a little bit more of an effort. Um, and I think it's just uh, intriguing throughout as far as uh, the different styles that you get. You get a lot of experimental, but also you get a lot of Floyd signature stuff, which is great. And I like that there's not a hit. You know, I like that there's not a um, Wish You Were Here or a Comfortably Numb or I mean, which are all fantastic songs, clearly. So for me, you know, this one, through the criteria that I've given previously on um, what makes for an On the Turntable album, this one's actually pretty easy for me. How about for you? What's your final cut? Animals is in the, in the collection for me. I, um, I probably don't listen to it top to bottom as much as I should. And maybe as much as I will moving forward after, you know, getting ready for this episode. And I think that has a little bit to do with the bookend songs. Um, and I'm not quite as into sheep as you are dogs and, uh, and pigs, three different ones are regularly rotated, but more as songs than an album but it's an incredibly important album for my taste in Pink Floyd. But remember Pink Floyd is a, has a vast catalog, yeah. right? So for me to just say it's on the turntable would discount the fact that I love the division bell. I love dark side of the moon, the wall, you know, I still enjoy listening to, even though it's so enormous and a couple of the other albums you mentioned, I mean, I still love Piper at the gates of dawn momentary lapse of reason has its moments. So you know, just to say, oh, it's on the turntable because it's one of my favorite Pink Floyd albums discounts the fact that there's also a lot of other things to listen to. And so I don't listen to this quite as much as probably I should, considering how really great of a work it is, top to bottom, but solidly in the collection. And I love the fact that it's on the turntable for you. And I'm not entirely surprised. I know that this one's always been an important one for you. And, you know, I, I kind of have a soft spot for, you know, these, these waters led efforts, to be honest with you. And, and lyrically, sometimes it's an eye roll and it's kind of like, okay, Raj, you know, give me a break, but musically, and certainly, you know, I think we talked a little bit about the impact of the bass on animals and some of his vocal work. I mean, you know, he's got a very unique voice. He doesn't have that soft soothing David Gilmore type voice, which God works so well on so many Floyd tracks, 
But Waters' vocal approach to me is always very interesting. And I, and I think I'd point to Sheep as a really, you know, kind of interesting way that he's using his voice. And he could use his voice in different ways, um, theatrically, as well as just from a pure rock vocal standpoint. But I dig this sort of, you know, the fact that you can clearly hear, hear Gilmore's influence on dogs. And I love David Gilmore, don't get me wrong, but... I'm a, I'm a pretty big Roger Waters fan when you kind of put aside some of his, you know, at times kind of overemphasis on themes and politics and some of those things that sometimes get a little bit kind of whatever, you know, you kind of put some of that aside and boy, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, when he drives the ship. All four of the band members, incredibly important to what Pink Floyd was and is, but Waters is pretty irreplaceable. And, and most would say Gilmore is as well. And don't discount Mason and Wright. I mean, this is just a great example of four individuals who just came together and created magical noise together. No doubt about it. Yep. All right, T. Let's check in with old Dolores. And let's go from albums to songs and say, what is in your head right now? All right, T, what is in your head right now? All right. Well, you know, listen, I, uh, you know, we're doing the Animals album. So my first pick on uh, What's in Your Head is probably my favorite Dave Matthews Band song, uh, which is Pig. This is off of Before These Crowded Streets, and I think it's uh, one of his finest songs. Uh, the second is a, a Def Leppard song called Animal, which... Every now and again, I just go back to hysteria and it's just like, man, these songs are just so good, you know, and, uh, and animals certainly one of the better songs on that album for sure. And, uh, and it's a beauty. And then the third is by uh, one of your all time favorites nubs. And that's, uh, that's King's X doing dog man, which is the opening track to dog man, a phenomenal album from those guys. And I always think of seeing them at Woodstock 94. You and I were actually fortunate enough to go to that. The King's X set was very, very special that night. And I remember them coming out and just grinding right into dog man. And it was outstanding. So, you know, went with a little bit of an uh, animals theme here on the old ground. ground, But there you go. I see your theme, buddy. Listen, listen, Uh, I'm not going to deny it. I did it. I did it. So anyway, that's my round and round. What's yours, buddy? Well, just to prove that we don't like script these podcasts or we're not, you know, we're not exchanging notes uh, before we go. My first in your head, actually. Anything but. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. People only do. uh, My first in your head is actually also King's X, which, yeah, one of my favorite bands. I think eventually we'll get to them, but it's Manic Moonlight, which is the uh, title track off of probably my least favorite King's X album, but one of my favorite King's X songs, which is Manic Moonlight. So that kicked it off. Last week, we talked about us being Fanalos, Barry Manilow fans. So oh, yeah. little Riders to the Stars made some sure, appearances this sure. week. The studio version, not the live version, the studio okay, version. Okay. Live version's great too, though. Live version's great. Live version's really good. Uh, but um, studio version off this one's for you. And then uh, Stone Tumble Pilots with uh, Trippin' on a Paper, Trippin', how do you say it? Trippin' on a Paper Heart. Tripping on a hole, tripping, tripping on a hole in a paper heart. Is that okay? Well, I'll let you fill it in. Did I get but that right? The one about tripping on a paper. That's what I could say. <laughs> but uh, 
Oh, what a jam from STP. I love it. Give it, tell me what it is. Tripping on a, I think I got it right. Tripping on a hole in a paper heart. Okay. Tripping on a hole in a paper heart. There you go. But, uh, oh, that's always been one of my favorite STP songs. It just yeah. completely rocks out. And, uh, so that's what's in my head T. So are you going to spend the rest of the day barking and snorting and buying oh. and all that? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll probably want to send me into a uh, mental institution by the end of the day. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I plan to do a lot of barking and uh, snorting and that sort of thing. And, and really, I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to make my uh, anti-capitalist statement by um, probably going somewhere like McDonald's or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just go Since really. it is lunchtime after all. Really kind of go, you know, stick it to the man. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's what I'm out to do for sure. I'm probably going to go bathe because I've been hanging around animals all, all day. Yeah. Hanging around the dogs and the sheep and the pigs and everything. Filthy. Get a little, get a little uh, gamey. Well, we talked about a take a shower album. This is like literally one of those. <laughs> yeah. Literally, literally. Exactly. Hey, thanks everybody for tuning in and stay in touch with us. Once again, give us feedback, give us a rating, subscribe to us on our various outlets and make requests because as we showed with our Foo Fighters episode last week, we take requests and we fulfill requests. So feel free to hit us up and T, they could find us on Twitter. And what is our Twitter handle? Well, yes, we are tweeting and, uh, and that would be uh, the number two uh, underscore twins underscore album. Absolutely fabulous. And there's just one more thing to say to you, and that is yes, 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 yes. Thank LeBron you, LeBron so James. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Two Twins and an album. We'll see you for episode 13. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.